back to Stand Up with Pete Dominic on Indy. Sirius XM 104. Probably one of the most impactful issues facing Americans is the economy. And joining us now is a guest who writes a weekly column for The Guardian, The Huffington Post, Truth Out, and his blog, Beat the Press, is great. Features commentary and, and criticism on economic reporting being done by any media outlet, including The Washington Post and New York Times. He is also the co-director of the Center for Economic Policy and Research, and has been far too long since my favorite economist has joined us. Dean Baker is here. He has not suspended his Twitter account like our last guest, at Dean Baker. 13. Hi, Dean. How are you? Good. Glad to hear I haven't had my account suspended. No, no. He did that voluntarily because he went on vacation, and I thought that was a strange choice and criticized him for it. Oh, appropriately. So yeah. <laughs> I'm good, man. How are you? Yeah, keeping me busy. Um, the, the, I mean, just generally, I like to just start generally. There's you, You're always writing and, and criticizing and commenting on a number of things. Where are we in America? 7.6 unemployment. The last uh, job numbers a couple weeks ago were better, but uh, people forget this story because there's other new things in our, the way our news cycle down. But there's still a huge percentage of Americans that are unemployed, underemployed, and it still probably should be the biggest story. Do you agree? It should be. I mean, you know, millions of people are, are suffering very directly the impact of this and tens of millions of more because, you know, really the ability, this isn't rocket scientists, the ability of most people to improve their situation, to get a wage increase at the job they're at or be able to find a better job, that depends on the overall state of the labor market. So when you're in the situation we're in today with 7.6% unemployment, we're down somewhere around 8.5 million jobs from our trend level, for a large segment, probably a majority of workers, this really fundamentally affects their position on their job because if we're back at you know we're back in 2007 with four and a half percent unemployment or even better in 2004 percent unemployment, people didn't like their job. They could tell their boss, you know, look, I, I, you're gonna have to give me a raise or I'm leaving. And you know, in, in those situations, you could do that. But today, there aren't a lot of people in that situation. So that should be you know issue number one, two, and three. But you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of people have to do, well, nothing we could do about it. It's just kind of like the weather. What do you think? Uh, I asked a big question uh, uh, on, on, I think, Facebook I asked, and Twitter last week. I said, why? I just said to people, just generally, why do you think people are poor? What makes people poor? Not what makes people rich. Not what, how do you mean? If you're poor, why do you think people are poor? What is the what is the what is economist Dean Baker think about generally why people are on the lower end of the income scale in America in 2013? Well, you could say people in general lower end are people who have less education. I mean, that part's true, but does that correspond does that guarantee that you're going to be poor? Well, that's the situation with the economy. So you know, we could look at a lot of people that are struggling today, maybe getting food stamps, other forms of government assistance. Maybe they don't have work and, and say, okay, well, that, that's really their fault. But on the other hand, a few years ago, 2007, a lot of these same people had jobs often reasonably well-paying. I mean, they weren't getting 100000 a year, but they were often getting enough to support their family and not need government assistance. And, you know, oftentimes people do the things we would like to see them do. They take a chance to, you know, get more education, improve their skills as soon as they, they you know, they're they're on their feet. So I would say, yeah, you know, you could look at those at the bottom and say generally they don't have the same education as people are doing better. Not always true because sometimes you have people with college degrees, you know, and people do have very good education. But for the most part, they have less education. But what determines that they're poor and struggling as opposed to having a chance is really the overall state of the economy. When we think about the basics of what, of what you need to survive, 
Again, let's just focus on America. We can compare and contrast, uh, obviously, uh, uh, other Western democracies and or China and other places as well. But when you think about the basic things that you need to survive or to support a family, uh, you definitely think uh, food, shelter, and I think healthcare, health insurance. Um, and certainly those are not a right in America. And therein lies the, the big debate and controversy uh, and conversation uh, classically between liberals and conservatives in America, but however you want to label it. But right now, specifically, we've been having a big debate about this food stamp bill, about the, the what's called the farm bill. And I don't think it's necessarily wrong. It's pejorative, but not wrong to call it the, 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 the food stamp bill because most of it does go to food stamps and not subsidizes uh, farms and farmers. But where are we where are we historically in terms of what government is currently providing in terms of food stamps and, and what what you know what we maybe should be providing in your take well we haven't increased uh, food stamps you know it's sort of funny i'm in you know living in dc i get the tv for for virginia so you know we were getting all the ads from uh, you know the republicans yelling about food stamp nation this and oh, that. a big race in virginia right uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, the reality was uh, President Obama did not increase food stamps. He didn't increase the number. I mean, he didn't increase eligibility. Now, what happened was because the economy collapsed and so many people otherwise would have been working or working full time, they don't work as many hours or they don't work at all, they're getting food stamps. But it's not as though we've changed the policy to make it easier to get food stamps. It's what happens every time you have a downturn. And, you know, to my mind, that's a good thing. I want to see people get food stamps. I want to see them have jobs. But when they don't have jobs, then, you know, we want to see that, you know, they could support their family, support their kids, have enough to eat. So, no, I hate food stamps. I want everyone to have a job. But But in terms of... And, and, and they're really, they're called SNAP. It's a card that you get. We don't actually have food stamps anymore, and they've been drastically, uh, I think, cut back in, in, in many ways. But in terms of what you're eligible, uh, what you need to have in terms of income and dependence and so on, it, it's, it's hard. And it, it doesn't really feed a family, much less an individual, very well. But the debate right now is, you know, cutting them entirely or, or something in, 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 this, in this next round. And from, again, from an economist's point of view, and not necessarily from an emotional point of view, I can always provide that. What does that do to the economy? Because government spending on things like SNAP, food stamps, uh, uh, or other forms of, uh, uh, of the welfare state uh, and versus education or versus defense, what goes furthest? Well, you want spending in the economy right now, and if you know the money will be spent, then that's really the most effective way to boost the economy. And food stamps, you know, pretty much by definition get spent. That's all you can do with it. You know, you have you have the ability, you know, the average, I think it's around $150 a month. Um, you know, it, it's not, you know, people aren't going to get rich on this. But, you know, the only thing you do with it is spend on food. That's it. So, you know, other other forms of spending, you know, it's not always spent right away. Some of it's spent overseas. This, you know, people are going to the grocery store and they're spending it. We know it will get spent. So in that sense, it provides the most immediate boost to the economy. And that's that's not much it's my speculation. I mean, the Congressional Budget Office has done research on this, as have others, and they attach the highest multiplier, the highest job impact to a dollar spent on food spending as opposed to any other form of spending. Well, let me ask uh, Dean Baker, economist Dean Baker, this one. It's about how do you pay for college? There's a big debate right now on, on, on student loans and the interest rate, I guess, which should be a, uh, attached to them. Uh, but, however, the debate isn't only between Democrats and Republicans. I'm not sure how far apart they necessarily are on it. And it's, it, it, it seems to be also between Democrats and Democrats. And you've written a piece about this uh, as well. And, uh, but, I mean, the argument is convincing to me. I don't I don't believe it, but it is a convincing argument, Dean Baker, that when you sub when government subsidizes college loans, 
colleges, especially the private uh, institutions, are going to charge more because as long as they know the government's going to help pay for it, might as well charge more because we're going to get more. So so that subsidy, it's not implied, it's ex- explicit subsidy to college uh, education costs raises the cost of colleges. That's the one debate. But the other debate is the student loan interest rate. Cover any of that and, and offer what you think is the best solution. Well, you know, I think you, you raised two different issues and, you know, very important right. issues. You know, one, you know, the cost of college, yeah, you know, and I, I am concerned about how that's skyrocketing. And a lot of this is, you know, uh, some of the administrators getting large six-figure salaries, which I think is kind of out of place in an educational institution. But the other part, you know, the student loans, you know, we have to make college affordable to people. And it gets to be a joke when you have people graduating four-year colleges with thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 in debt. And very uncertain job prospects. And, you know, I was happy to see the, you know, I assume you're referring to Elizabeth Warren's proposal to have yeah. a lower, this is, would just be for one year, a lower uh, interest rate. It would be set equal to the to the uh, rate that uh, banks pay the, the Federal Reserve. The idea there is that students should be able to borrow at the same interest rate level as banks are able to borrow. And that sounds great and populist, but economically, is there a problem there? Well, this is one year. It's symbolic, you know. It's uh, I, I wouldn't set that as policy. I mean, there are reasons banks are allowed to borrow at low rates. This is kind of emergency funding, you know. So I wouldn't get. In, I I wouldn't say as a matter of principle that we would set those rates the same. But as a matter of policy, for one year, could we do that? Sure, we could do that. So I wouldn't say that that's like a, a principle we should strive for that have student loan rates at the same rate that banks borrow from the central bank to get reserves when they need them. But, uh, you know, for one year, that's the sort of thing we could easily do. Well, what's the difference between proposals then of Republicans and Democrats? And what is that infighting within the Democrats on it? Well, a lot of Democrats have been cautious about going with lower interest rates. Um, Republicans have been, uh, some of them saying we should have much higher rates, 6.75%. So you really find a, a range of opinions on that. Now, one of the things, you know, a friend of mine, John Burbank, up in uh, Washington State, has grouped Economic Opportunity Institute. He has a proposal called Pay It Forward, where you get rid of the idea of loans altogether. And the basic story is that you'd be able to go to your state university and rather than having coming out with twenty, thirty thousand dollars in debt, you'd simply pay a somewhat higher tax rate, which is an interesting idea. You you won't have uh, you won't have debt, but you know when you if you if you earn a lot of money, you'll pay more in taxes. If you don't, well, then you know you won't end up paying that much. But it does. Uh, it, it's an interesting way. You know, there's some issues that have to be worked out. I think for you to go that way, but it's an interesting alternative to people coming out of college with large amounts of debt. Let me let me ask you about about subsidizing industries. You hear this common you hear this common argument and, and phrase government shouldn't pick winners. And I think the argument there you can present it obviously better even though I don't think you agree with it is that let the market decide. Let free let the free market decide what industries uh, and companies should win. That you'll hear that a lot from folks on the right. But my but 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 at the same time the right is constantly picking and choosing winners by subsidizing the oil industry implicitly subsidizing the financial and banking industry, and most recently subsidizing the agriculture and farm industry. You can't have it both ways. Either government is giving tax credits or money or incentives, or they're not. And in this last farm bill, it certainly seems to me that Republicans in the House gave a whole lot of money in subsidies and government taxpayer money to the agriculture industry, and they are picking the winner there, no? 
Absolutely, but I'll go a step further. I mean, one of the things that upsets me most, patents and copyrights, these are huge, huge amounts of money that the government's giving to, you know, largely the pharmaceutical industry, the tech sector. If people think this is promoting innovation, they've got it absolutely backward. When when, when Apple's getting a patent now, that's, that's a weapon to use against Google and Microsoft. They're going to fight battles over that in court. It's got nothing to do with innovation at this point. This Why? What, what, what's I, Okay, let me t try to uh, play devil's advocate on that. If, I, if I've come up with an innovation... I should have the right to, 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 to patent and copyright and benefit that innovation. What's, what's the rub? Well, what you're asking, you aren't having, asking for the right to benefit. You can go ahead and produce as much as you want. You're asking the government to arrest people who come up with something comparable. Maybe they learned it from you, maybe they didn't. And what we find now is that people are spending literally billions of dollars in court cases fighting each other over very often totally bogus claims. But if I can convince... If I can convince you that, you know, you have some great product, you want to market it, but I could have you tied up in court for years with the patent battle, you give me millions of dollars just to go away. Happens all the time. Really? So, and I didn't realize that. Saying, I don't know anything about that. This isn't, this, this isn't my, uh, you know, Baker's uh, nutty radicalism. Uh, this is talked about in the business press. Google, about a year or two ago, bought a major division from Motorola, their, their uh, mobility division. And the business press was saying that the reason they did it was that they wanted their patents. Google, of course, a relatively new company, doesn't have that many patents. And it wasn't that they wanted their patents to use, per se. I mean, I'm sure they'll find some use. But rather, it's standard practice. When, when Apple sues Samsung or Microsoft, then, 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 then Samsung or Microsoft immediately respond and go, yeah, well, we got two or three or four patent suits against you. And then at the end of the day, they go, okay, we'll work out a deal and we all drop each other's suits. Well, Google didn't have that backlog of patents. So they spent $7 billion buying a division of Motorola just so that they would be able to proceed with their, their lines of development without having to, to fear as much patent suits from their competitors. Well, what's the solution for that? Well, I think what we need to do is have a lot more of the funding done in common and a lot weaker patents that uh, I wouldn't say get rid of patents altogether, but I think we have to rely on them much, much less and make it much more difficult to, to, to pursue patents in court. We're talking to uh, award-winning, celebrated economist Dean Baker. He is one of my favorites because I don't know anything about economics, but a lot of what uh, he says uh, comes true. Unfortunately, he predicted the housing bubble uh, and said it was pretty easy and obvious where others like Alan Greenspan did not. Uh, and so uh, I want to ask you, uh, I want to uh, talk about housing. Housing, Dean Baker, is back. All of the metrics are saying we're, we're back. It's good. And that's a great sign for the economy. And now I expect you will shit on the housing is back uh, theory. Well, mixed story. I mean, construction's certainly not back. We're still way below uh, even normal levels, much less the bubble levels. And I certainly wouldn't want us to see us back to the bubble levels of 2002 to 2006. We still have considerable, um, uh, considerable backlog. Vacancy rates are still near record highs, so that's why construction's still weak. But what I've been focused on is prices. And prices, you know, for the most part are not in a bubble now, but they have been rising rapidly. I guess what I'm concerned about is that in a lot of areas, they're rising extremely rapidly, like Phoenix, uh, Arizona, Las Vegas, Nevada. They're rising at like 30 40% annual rates. And if you look at those markets, I wouldn't say they're obviously out of line today, but, you know, it doesn't take a lot of arithmetic if they're rising at 30 40% annual rate. Well, if that keeps going for very long, they will be out of line. Well, bubbles again, and that's not going to be good news. Is that, does that mean in those places which were that you mentioned, those markets that you just mentioned, where we also know that that people really got screwed and lost on their investments in their homes or whatever extra homes that they were flipping and so on? Does that mean that that those housing prices are are back to where they were when they bought those homes? 
Well, they aren't back to their bubble peaks, but they are back to their pre-bubble levels. So, you know, people who bought in 05, 06, they're still hurting. But someone who bought in, you know, 2001, 2002, they're pretty much back to those levels. So, you know, they're kind of back to normal levels, at least as I see it. But, again, if they keep rising, and I'm not talking about long into the future, if they keep rising at this rate another six months or a year, you're almost certainly talking about serious bubbles. And this is being driven in part by speculators, you know, and that to some extent, okay, you know, speculator gets in there and they lose a lot of money. They're supposed to know what they're doing. Maybe they don't, but they're supposed to know. And, you know, I'm not going to shed any tears. But invariably, you're going to get ordinary homeowners who get caught up in that. We're going to have a lot of people who are, again, underwater in their mortgage. They've lost, you know, 20%, 30% of the price they paid on a home. You can't want to see that again. You know, we just had that. You can't want to see that happen again just a few years later. Another issue that I know plays a huge part in, in economics and, 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 and people's wages and, and the ability to do business, but we don't talk about it as much. May, I guess it's not as sexy. I don't know why not, and maybe we could make it sexier here, Dean. Uh, but the, the idea that, you know, and I don't, we can argue about where it falls in the liberal conservative paradigm and everything is supposed to be so damn divisive. But the idea that, that you know, globalization uh, and, and the rise of other countries and their economies uh, and, and technology and innovation that, that has arisen uh, with the advent, the invent of the Internet and everything. But the, the, the thing that I'm talking about is, is the trade deals, the trade deals that we, America, uh, this country has with many other countries that kind of a lot of people argue uh, sell out uh, the middle class, especially w- where, where do you come down? I, I know you've written a, a, a recent piece about this on the trade deals, the effect that they have on American salaries and wages and jobs, and what do you do about it outside of being isolationist? Well, what I've always said with these trade deals is they've been very selective, so that they've been focused on lowering wages of manufacturing workers by putting them in competition with people in China, India, other countries where people get much lower wages. And, you know, people sometimes say, well, they don't work as they're planned. No, they, they work exactly as they're planned. That's what's supposed to happen. They lower the wages. That's not, you know, that's not rocket science. That's about well, they lower the wages, but don't they, end, don't they end, more dramatically, end the jobs? I mean, can't you just travel across America, especially in the Rust Belt, upstate New York, et cetera, uh, and, and see that there's just hollowed out old factories that ended a long time ago? Forget about wages, no jobs, no industry. Well, the two go hand in hand. That's right. So, so we've lost millions of manufacturers jobs in large part due to trade. So we have a trade deficit on the order of uh, around $600 billion a year, about 4% GDP, that corresponds to somewhere around 5 million manufacturing jobs. So those go hand in hand. And, you know, but, but again, this is by design. And, you know, people raise the isolationist issue. The point I always make is we focused on manufacturing. We didn't have to. We could focus on doctors. We could focus on lawyers. We could focus on dentists. There are a lot of very smart, very ambitious people in places like India, China, other developing countries who'd be very happy to do those jobs for a half or less than what the professionals in them today. And the exact same argument, the exact same argument that economists make as to why it's better we get our cars from cheaper places in you know, Mexico or wherever, the exact same argument applies to doctors, lawyers, and dentists, and other highly paid professionals, but we literally never see it. And people flip out. I'll just show, re- refer to you an article in the New York Times today. It's in reference to Brazil, but it's the same thing. They go, Brazil, their, their uh, president had this idea about uh, dealing with a shortage of doctors by bringing in doctors from other countries, because Brazil, you know, in the developing world, at least a relatively, you know, high-paid country, so they could find doctors from other countries. And the whole article is focused, like, what a harebrained idea. And they talk to doctors saying, oh, why would she do this? This is outrageous. It's going to hurt our wages. Well, that's trade. But rather than referring to it as, she's a free trader, you're a protectionist, they said, this is a crazy idea. 
And it just shows the class bias and policy that if we want to have free trade, let's start at the top. Let's start at the doctors and lawyers. We know how to do it. It's not hard. We know how to do it. But no one does it because those lobbies are much more powerful than auto workers and textile workers right. and other, other more moderately paid workers. Uh, you know, Dean, is, the, is there an economic policy? Again, we're talking to economist Dean Baker. At Dean Baker 13 is his Twitter handle. Is there an economic theory or policy that says that although, uh, you know, our trade deals really hollowed out specifically manufacturing, as the rest of the world kind of catches up with America, those jobs will, will come back in mass. Is there an economist or an economic theory that says there will be, after all this pain and all these jobs lost, uh, balance after a generation or, or two? Well, if you go long enough time, you know, you get to a point where, you know, countries, China, India, that, that you know, they're growing rapidly and they'll achieve living standards that are comparable to us, or some, some might hope, I certainly would hope. And at that point, you know, we would not see the same sort of downward pressure on wages from competing with them. So you could, you could look at that happening, but we are still a very long way from, from that date occurring. I mean, we're talking, you know, at least another generation and maybe more. So... Uh, anyone who wants to try and say, well, in the long run, this benefits us, um, it, not most of us. And again, you know, if we want to talk about trade policy to make it, you know, see those benefits more quickly, let's have the competition with the doctors, the lawyers, the high-end professionals. Um, you know, it's re- I, I get such a kick out when I raise this to the economists. They invariably look at me with blank stares, and then they well, just say incredibly stupid things like, what do you mean? My doctor was born in India. And I'm going, I thought you're an economist. I don't care about your doctor. What percent of doctors? I've had some people go, well, do you know that 20% of doctors were foreign-born? And I go, what percent of our shirts are foreign-born? Like <laughs> they just say ungodly, stupid things. These are people with PhDs from MIT and Harvard and other places. But, it, but, but in, that, in that, that suggestion, though, just to be clear, is, is what – Brazil is doing because you can't outsource. I mean, I, you can some healthcare, but you generally can't outsource healthcare. You have to see a doctor in America. So that theory is bringing doctors from other countries to America to create a different level of supply and demand. That's right, but you also can outsource some healthcare. This is another area I've done a little work in. I have some friends who are doing work in this. That you, when you look at major medical procedures, and a lot of money is spent on this, something like heart, you know, open heart surgery. You know, these are very, very expensive procedures. You have top flight medical facilities in India, Thailand, that will charge a tenth as much, and that really matters because you know we're talking about procedures that might well cost you two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand here. That you go to those places, they'll be twenty, twenty. And these are these are modern doctors. I'm not, I'm not modern facilities. I'm not talking about you know rural villages where you know they don't wash the, you know the the medical equipment. These are these are modern facilities. The same sort of facilities you'd have here, and you could encourage people to take advantage of those. And you know, I know it's expensive to travel, but but, there, but, yeah, but, but throwing twenty thousand travel, you know, you'd still come right. out way ahead. But by going, you're talking about medical tourism. You're talking about you actually. It's not that they would perform the surgery from Thailand to, to you in a in an operating room in America. You would you would go, you would go to there, get your yeah, dental yeah, work with your family members, and people do. I mean, right? Yeah. That is a growing uh, trend and movement. Uh, certainly, with I, I I keep mentioning dental care or even eye care, right? Things that are really really prohibitively expensive. People will go to Mexico and Thailand, won't they? Yeah, yeah, and I, I think we should encourage it. Now, it's not my first best choice. I would rather fix our health care system here. But, yeah. you know, we know the obstacles. So if we can't, 
you know, fix the health care system here, reform it, get, you know, something like a universal Medicare system, which I think is wonderful, but we're not going to see it, at least not anytime soon. Um, why not just, you know, make it easier for people to go to these places, get much lower cost care, and split the gains. You know, split, you know, insurance companies are picking up the tab on much of this today and, you know, work it out so that they would have paid 200000 here. They'll pay only 20000 25000 in India. Why not uh, give the patient 50000 They'll pocket the rest. Everyone, everyone should be happy. Um, we could try to construct trade deals that would facilitate that. But, again, it's not on the list. I have one more. I have two more questions. One is completely has nothing to do with your expertise, and, and then I'm going to go to the credit uh, ratings agencies and we're wrap. Uh, do you root for the uh, the bull or the people running from the bull in Spain, Dean? It says a lot about who you uh, you based on uh, who you root for. You're a dog guy. I gotta confess, I'm for the bull. <laughs> yes, no, I'm with you. It's hard to watch a person get gored. Uh, especially if she's a lovely young American woman, which just happened. But you got to uh, root for the bull. Heard, but uh, the bull has been asked to be there. You know, the the people, you know, they volunteered. I don't want to see people get I don't think, I'm place. sorry, let me correct you. And rarely do I do this with you. The bull has not been asked to be there, Dean. That's right. The bull. You said that the bull's been asked to be there. No, I said the bulls were not asked. Oh, I thought you said the bull has been asked. I thought you were being very polite. Okay. No, no, no. no we no, don't no. disagree. The bull has been forced to be there. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So you root for the bull and both the running of the bulls and the bull fight. Exactly. Okay. I'm glad that. All right. That would have really, I think, upset me if you hadn't rooted for the bull. Um, the credit ratings agencies. I'm hearing. I'm seeing. I haven't read any of these. This one bores me to tears. So try to dress it up for me. But I am seeing. Articles, and I do understand this a little bit. That that uh, you know, we're finally going after the credit rating agency. What, what's happening? Okay, just so people understand the issue here, there's a classic conflict of interest here, where the credit rating agencies, a Moody's or a Standard Poor's, that rate issues. You know, your your Citigroup, your Goldman Sachs, you have a new mortgage-backed security. You want someone to rate it, so you call up Moody's. You say, well, rate this issue. You're paying them. Classic conflict of interest. Moody's Standard Poor take a look at it, and they go, hmm, I don't know. Well, they want the business, so they go investment grade. And that's exactly what happened in the, in, in, during, the, during the housing bubble. They were putting through all sorts of junk that the people at S&P and Moody's knew were junk, and they were going AAA, highest grading, you know, because that's what they knew, you know, Citigroup and, and Goldman and the other investment banks wanted. Classic conflict of interest. Now, they're facing some suits over that, but what was really discouraging to me, and I'll admit a little bit of personal stake because I worked on this, there was a very, very simple way to, to get rid of this conflict of interest. You simply have the Securities and Exchange Commission pick the credit rating agency. You still have Goldman or Citigroup or whoever pick up the tab, but when they have a new issue, a new, new mortgage-backed security, and they want it rated, instead of calling Moody's directly, they call up the Securities and Exchange Commission, and then they go, oh, okay, we'll send someone over. And what that means then is Moody's or, or Standard & Poor's or Fitch, whoever it is, they have no incentive to lie because they're going to get picked just the same amount regardless of whether this So it's a random picking of which credit agency as opposed to the one you're paying? Exactly. And, and that was passed as part of Dodd-Frank. Uh, Al Franken, the senator from Minnesota, put that in as an amendment. It got 65 votes. Republicans and Democrats, bipartisan support, passed overwhelmingly. Then it got nixed in conference. They replaced mm. it in a study. The Securities and Exchange Commission came out with kind of a bogus study, and they said, oh, this would be really complicated. I mean, it's kind of like if, you know, you asked me to go down to, to the store and buy peanut butter, and I said, well, that's really complicated. There are different types of peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, that's what they did, and they, and they killed it. 
so, I mean, it just spoke volumes. I've also about. been hearing a lot about Dodd-Frank and, and the, the problems with implementing it, and a lot of people know about uh, the, the issue uh, of appointing its head. Uh, but but what about where are we right now with implementing Dodd Frank? It's all it seems like it's all a lot of it's being dialed back. Again, I haven't read enough about. Yeah, it. no, it's, it's funny. I've been watching it a while. I, you know, it's not. I was naive even growing up. I grew up in Chicago with, as we say, the real Mayor Daly. So I didn't have illusions about policy, um, about politics. But you know, it, it, it was striking to me because basically anything that wasn't totally nailed down in the law is being rolled back to the point of being almost nothing. So. You know, what we end up with at the end of the day at Dodd-Frank, I just have to say I'm afraid not very much because mm. you get down to this rules-writing process and, you know, Goldman Sachs is their guy in there and Morgan Stanley is their person and, you know, and there's no one on the other side. I mean, we don't have that resources. So, you know, we have some people yeah. that volunteer their time or, you know, they're, they're getting paid nickels and dimes and, you know, they try and put in a word here or there. But the vast majority of what the regulatory agencies are hearing is coming from the industry groups and they invariably carry the day. Uh, do you know which industry donated the most to the uh, 2012 presidential campaign? Well, I guess finance, but I, I have to say yeah. I don't know. I it's finance. It's finance. Yeah. I, I I forget what the number is, but it's 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 finance, and um, uh, they donated the most to Republicans. But in the past, they donated a, a lot to to Democrats. And did you hear uh, that Tim Geithner got two hundred thousand dollars for a speech uh, uh, given at Deutsche Bank? I'm sure he's going to get two hundred thousand dollars for many speeches at the financial uh, financial. Is that gathering. payback? Is that is that too cynical for me to say they're paying him back? Let me put it this way: I think if he had spent his efforts breaking up the big banks and pushing a financial transactions tax, he wouldn't be getting two hundred thousand. But he doesn't. But they don't like each other. He cursed at them. They're no, they don't like each other. Well. You know, I think think of them like, you know, little babies that, you know, you say a bad word about them, they get very upset. Um, you know, uh, they would have rather that he held their hand the whole time and said, you're great, you, you know, you're really great, this is a horrible thing that happened to you. Um, there were times where he said some critical words, and, you know, some of them may actually have been upset. Others, you know, they just probably thought it was worth their while to appear to be upset. But the reality was, you know, the big banks are bigger than ever. They're as profitable as ever. Their CEOs, their top people are getting paid as much as ever. Uh, they must be very, very happy because back in 2008, when they were all flat on their backs and would have been bankrupt without a bailout, I don't think they would have envisioned they'd be in this situation today. Dean, awesome uh, to have you, for you uh, to have joined us. Uh, we covered a ton today. I really appreciate it. We'll talk to you very soon. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks a lot for having me on. All right. Dean Baker. Hey, what a great—we covered a lot there, huh? Um, follow him on Twitter, at DeanBaker13, and, and definitely mention that you heard him heard him here and appreciate it. Uh, if you disagree with something, mention it there as well. Read his uh, criticism, by the way, of economic reporting. It's always really, really interesting as well. Stand Up with Pete Dominic. For more Stand Up with Pete Dominic, go to SiriusXM.com slash indie.